morning, everyone. How are y'all doing? Uh, this is um, when I when I when I go to church. I don't um, work in a church anymore. I do work at a uh, private Christian school out in West Salem, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But when I do go to church, I get to. I usually you guys are my people. I like the eleven o'clock, a little more laid back, not the high stakes pressure of a nine a.m. service. Um, I do enjoy a good online service as well, and so. Uh, welcome to the online. I just, you know, nothing like watching from the comfort of your own house, huh? Um, but yes, I am Katie Mayer. I do work at a, a school. I'm a spiritual life director at Western Christian School out in West Salem. And uh, man, a lot of people are like, wow, spiritual life director, that's a weird role for a school. And it kind of, it is odd. I work as a, um, a pastor from basically like pre-K all the way to um, to seniors in high school and then even just walking alongside our staff and supporting them and praying for them and um, all that good stuff. And so it is quite the challenge. It is quite the task. Um, I've been there about two years now, which is wild, uh, but I absolutely love it. Um, we just got to celebrate. Uh, we got voted best of the Willamette Valley in a bunch of different categories. And so great place. I love working there and I love working with the best uh, of the Willamette, apparently. But um, yeah, that's a little bit about who I am. There was a last, I was here in April, I believe. There was a really cool uh, welcome video that Sean put together. What a what a guy uh, um, putting that together and saying, uh, I'm a big Dodger fan. I grew up in the Los Angeles area, um, a little beach city. Please don't hold it against me. Um, and if you're a Giants fan, that's great for you. We shouldn't talk about baseball for a while. Um, but that's 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 who I am a little bit. Uh, but I. Um, have been studying and reading a lot this summer. Um, I don't know if you might not recognize the, the, the name Western Christian, but you might recognize the name Western Mennonite. We used to be Western Mennonite School out there, and uh, was, school was founded by what my Mennonites, go, go figure, huh, um, out there. And uh, I'm just learning a little bit more and diving deeper into um, Mennonites and what they bring to the family of God and kind of their unique contributions. And one of the things that's just really stood out and is kind of where we're going to talk about today is just their emphasis on Jesus and how can we be more like Jesus and how can we follow in his footsteps and what does it mean to walk that out. And we're not going to start where they would probably start you, which is in um, the Beatitudes. It, uh, we're not going to start there. We are going to jump into the, uh, the Gospel of John today and take a little look. Um, what I love about the Gospel of John is, is that um, there's these seven I am statements in the Gospel. And what I love about it is it's kind of Jesus just saying who he is and throwing it out there. And what a great place to begin and look into diving in to who Jesus says he is. What a great place to start. Kind of crazy, kind of revolutionary. So we're going to be in there. We're going to be in John, and it's going to be chapter 6 if you got, if you want to flip there, if you want to peruse your Bible app and find your way there. Uh, that's where we're going to be at. Um, but what I love about, um, what I love about John and the, uh, the gospel of John is he does have these seven statements. And, and it basically is defining who Jesus is. And I think if John were to come and talk with us today, which would be great, wouldn't that be awesome? Man, interviewing people from the Bible. Uh, if he were to come, he would probably say that he would define Jesus as God. 
Doesn't seem super revolutionary, right, for us, but he would define him as God. And I think that he does this um, through these seven I am statements. He points to Jesus's divinity. He wants his readers to know that without a shadow of a doubt, that this Jesus is Yahweh, that he is the Messiah that the people have been waiting for. And I think we can tell this basically from the author highlighting these I am statements. Right off the bat, it might seem like a pretty common phrase for us. I use I am all the time. Perhaps, you know, it's getting to be closer and closer to lunch. Perhaps you're going to say, I'm hungry. <laughs> or uh, I am tired, which is usually why I come to the 11 o'clock, yeah? Um, and uh, you could say, I'm the spiritual life director. I'm an electrician. I am a daughter. I am wherever you find yourself. You can use this phrase a lot. We use it quite a lot to describe ourselves. Um, but to the original audience, this would have just carried a lot more weight for them. Let me explain. Um, do you remember the story in the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus 3, where Moses is out minding his own business, right? He was tending, I believe, to sheep. Uh, he was out minding his own business, and all of a sudden, he like looks over, and there's like a bush just burning out of nowhere. Kind of crazy, right? And the crazier part is, the most wild part of it, um, this wasn't just like a, like a burn pile, right? The things in it weren't being consumed. It was just like a bush on fire forever. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, it gets even weirder. The bush starts talking to Moses. Yes? Am I, you guys remembering this? Yeah? Starts talking to him. And um, basically, we find out that Moses starts talking with God through this bush, God tells Moses that he needs to go to Pharaoh, that he needs to set the Israelites free. And then Moses asks the bush, asks God, who should I say sent me? A, a pretty excellent question when talking to a burning bush, if you were to ask me. Um, and God says something very specific to Moses. He says, I am who I am sends you. Now, there's some huge ramifications for this, uh, for, for Israel and, and for Moses throughout this whole thing. And that's we're not going to necessarily unpack that today, but for now, all we need to know is that the Jewish, where the Jewish people derive the name for God, their name for God comes directly from this phrase, I am. And it's where we get the name Yahweh. With this in mind, Jesus saying I am would have flagged something in the minds of the people. It would have caught their attention, and for sure they would have gotten that reference. Uh, no wonder religious leaders of that day got mad. Can you imagine some dude walking around, gathering a large following, right? Uh, people starting to listen to what he's, what he's teaching. And then he starts using phrases that seem to insinuate that he's divine. Uh, I do feel fairly confidently that we probably would label this guy as a cult leader if this were to happen just in our day and age. And so it's, it's kind of an odd thing. But when with that history in the back of our minds... Uh, Let's open up. We're going to be in John chapter 6, and you can follow along there. And I'm, we're going to, what I want to read specifically out of the middle of, of, um, of the chapter, but if you're any great, you know, theologian, you know that the text has to be taken in context. So we got we to gotta learn a little bit about what's going on before we actually read out of John chapter 6. So here is previously on the gospel of John. Uh, this chapter, it actually starts out with this really wild story. Jesus is doing his thing. He's out teaching. He's out healing. He's out. Miracles are happening. Some really cool stuff, signs and wonders. And then all of a sudden, this massive group starts to follow him, right? And uh, there, it says that there's 5,000 men that are kind of following, listening to his teachings in this day. 
And that's not counting women and the children and the families that probably would have accompanied to come and listen. And so we're looking at a huge group, right? If every guy comes with a lady and maybe a couple kids, we're looking 15, maybe 20,000 people. And as they're listening and talking, Jesus turns to his disciples and he's like, oh, you guys, these, these people look hungry. We should feed them. Why don't you guys feed them? And if I were a disciple, I would have, I would have cried. Like, I don't know where I'm going to, how are you, how am I supposed to get the money to feed these people? Like, I think of like going to like a baseball game or a football game, like that's that level size of people there. Can you imagine? I mean, just hot dogs alone and then, then sodas. And what if they want popcorn? I can't afford that. And where am I? So have you ever been to the Sea of Galilee? I've, I've gotten to go. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. Where are they supposed to get all this food from? And it says that Jesus was asking them to test them. And so when all is said and done, Jesus uh, gets a little boy's sack lunch and prays, gives thanks to it. And they start passing it out. And everybody eats to their full and they pick up some leftovers. How wild is that? How wild. Everybody gets to eat and there's leftovers. Um, this brings us to chapter 6 uh, in verse 15 where it says that Jesus, knowing that the crowds intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to the mountain by himself. Uh, it, this is a super important verse and we're going to need it later. So maybe put a little mark and we'll come back to it. Carrying on in this narrative, at this point, Jesus sneaks away from everybody. And I have to assume that not even the disciples know where he went because we can see in the next couple verses that they jump into a boat and they go across the Sea of Galilee without Jesus in the middle of the night. Why? I don't know. Um, did they look for him and couldn't find him? Maybe Jesus made a habit out of disappearing. Probably. Uh, all I know is that Jesus didn't actually need a boat because about three to four miles into their journey, going across the Sea of Galilee, Jesus kind of like walks up beside him and then hops in the boat, <laughs> right? And I don't um, necessarily want to camp out here too long because it's, it's pretty cool. I, I like the shirts that say, um, Jesus surfs without a board. Those are cool shirts. Um, but we don't need to camp out here too long. Uh, it should be pointed out, though, that Jesus literally runs across the water to get away from these crowds. Literally runs away from them across water. And so um, the next day, the crowd who's on the other side wakes up from sleeping in their camp out. Their tummy's still full of all the good food they just ate. Wakes up and they're like, who took Jesus? Where'd he go? And through their talking and interaction, they're like, well, I bet he went to the other side. Let's all, let's all get in boats and we'll all go to the other side. And so they all jump in, approximately a million boats to carry them. That's a lot of people to go to the other side of the lake. And that's where we are for our main text today. So if you're still with me, we're going to be in chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. Where it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answers, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
And so they asked him, well, then what sign will you give so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to him, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, always gives us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much for your word. Um, God, uh, would you, I love that it says that your word is, um, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, would you, uh, would you work in our lives as we just examine some things that, uh, that I believe to be true about who you are? Lord, would you, um, would you challenge us? But, Lord, will we rise to the challenge? Will we, um, we grow more and more into your likeness and look more and more like you as we learn from you? In your name, amen. 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 All right, I'm a big list list person, and so I got three things for you on the list today, and so we'll hit that so you can kind of follow along as we're going. Just three major points that I kind of see pop off the page for me in here, but also um, each of them kind of come with a little bit of a challenge, and so if you find your, hopefully you find yourself a little challenged by the end of today. But the very first thing that we're going to look at is that Jesus seems way less concerned about the temporary and more concerned about the eternal. Um, Back in verses 25, 26, 27, um, it kind of feels like Jesus comes in a little hot here, right? The crowds who have been just following Jesus around come up to him after he kind of ran away from them, right? And I like to picture them out of breath. And they're like, Jesus, whoo. You ran real fast. Where you been? Uh, what the heck? Why'd you run away from us? Where have you been? Um, how, how did you get here? Because we, we didn't see you get in the boat with your disciples. You weren't here. Uh, and Jesus kind of comes in hot and says, hey, you weren't looking for me, actually. You were looking for another meal. Oh, Jesus. First, you're running away from these very nice people who are enjoying your teachings, right? Uh, Don't you want followers? Don't you want everybody to be your disciple? Uh, You're kind of getting to be a big deal, Jesus. This is a cool thing you got going on. But there's something a little bit more at work here. Um, Remember how I asked you just to put your finger on verse 15. It says that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, why would the people want to make Jesus king <laughs> after, after he just fed them a good meal, you know? <laughs> Why? I mean, wasn't Jesus just kind of being friendly? It's like the hospitable thing to do, you know? Um, you know, you invite friends over and you put out a nice cheese plate, right? You're just not, you're like feeding people is, is kind. Um, but there's a little bit of a missing piece that I just want to unpack here for you guys. In, in Exodus 16, the nation of Israel uh, back in the Old Testament literally just miraculously escaped, right, from slavery in Egypt. Uh, it's a good, a good um, Bible story that we learn about in kids' church all the time, right? Moses uh, prays and, you know, God parts the Red Sea and, and the Israelites get to escape. Well, we're now on the other side of that, right? The Egyptians are gone. Israel finds himself in the middle of a desert, um, very thirsty and hungry, right? And they're like, cool, we're not, we're not slaved, enslaved anymore, but also where's our next meal coming from? 
And this is, um, this is where we find ourselves. They're out in the middle of the desert, and God miraculously provides. In fact, he tells Moses that he's going to send bread from heaven. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, every day so that they won't go hungry. The Israelites start calling it manna, which just basically means, what is it? Can you imagine waking up in the middle or, you know, in the morning and you poke your head out of your tent and you're like, oh, what is that? And that's what they just start calling it, right? It's this manna, it's this food that's bread that fell from heaven and they ate it. They were sustained throughout the desert with it. Um, With that, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the rabbis back in the day of Jesus's time would have taught that um, would have taught that there was a man that would come that would deliver their nation back to a time of prosperity and blessing. And one of those signs that that man would perform would be bringing bread or manna from heaven. So this crowd saw Jesus bring bread from heaven, yes, and they were like, score! This is the dude. He's going to rule our nation. We're going to have the best 40 years until he dies. We're never going to go hungry again. This guy's our meal ticket. He's going to make, he's going to make Israel great again. But Jesus didn't want to be an earthly ruler. Jesus, he's actually debatably playing the longest game here, right? He is going to be an eternal ruler of an eternal kingdom. So he pre- presents them with a little taste of what he really means and tells them more or less, you worked really, really hard to get a second meal, right? The Sea of Galilee, it's a big sea. It's a big, I say lake, but man, I've been on it. It's massive. It is massive. So they worked really hard to get to the other side to get the second meal. But don't work for something that's going to go bad after a couple of days. Work hard for some food that's going to last forever. So what does this mean for us? Uh, I think that sometimes we can have the same mindset as the crowd. In Greek, there's a few different words for life. One of them is bios. And this is a word that's very much concerned with material possessions or property, right? It's kind of what you can amass over a lifetime. Your house, your cars, the things that are in your garage, you know, all your collections, um, all that good stuff. All uh, I'm trying to think of collections, um, and the only thing I can think of are those little precious moment stalls. <laughs> but, you know, your collections, the things that you can have over a lifetime. Um, the second word, though, that in the one that Jesus uses, the one that's used in this very text, is the word zoe. And it means life, but it actually has present and eternal implications. It's a, it's a huge theme in the book of John, and it, it just continually refers back to this quality of life that we have available to us through Jesus. My mind jumps exactly like jumps to Matthew, right in uh, in chapter six, verses nineteen and twenty-one, where it says, "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." And I don't know about you, but this seems. Um, life just really seems to have a way of testing this in my life and this idea in my life. Um, where's my treasure? Is my heart set on the here and now? What am I doing to invest my life more in the eternal? Now, I'm not trying to say that things are bad, right? I got here in a car and I'm very thankful. (laughs) Very thankful I didn't have to walk this morning from West Salem, but, um, we don't, we don't have to 
think that it's bad to be concerned in what's happening around us in the here and now. We don't need to get rid of all of our stuff and live in a monastery, although that sounds kind of fun sometimes. Um, We don't need to run away from society, become Amish, you know. Uh, What I am asking here, though, is where is your priority landing? Are you focused more on creating your wealth here on earth? Or are you focused solely on on a temporary kingdom? Or are you living your life in such a way that you're storing up your treasures in heaven? Where does your heart lie? Is is it with Jesus and his eternal kingdom? Or is it focused on the temporary? The second thing that I see here in verses 28 and 29, it says that it seems that Jesus is less concerned with works and more concerned with belief. He's less concerned with works and more concerned with belief. Again, the crowd misses the point here. They come back and they say, well, what kind of work do we need to do? And Jesus answers plain and simple. Oh, just believe in the one God sent. Believe in me, basically, right? And that didn't sell them. They didn't like it, right? So further on, they ask for another sign. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, sure. Show us another miracle, though. Um, they even bring up manna, right, in this verse. He's, uh, the point... Um, At this point, it kind of seems like Jesus finally gives the people what they want. Oh, it's the Father that gives the true bread. This is the bread that comes from heaven that will give life to all. That's what they've been wanting. The crowd is sold, right? They're on board again. This is the miracle they want, but they're still actually misunderstanding what Jesus is telling them. They want to know what kind of works they need to do. And um, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you've read through the book of James recently, but it talks about in chapter two how uh, faith without works is dead. Uh, Basically, you know, James is saying that people will know that we believe in Jesus based on how we act. And I don't disagree with him, right? But I do want to pose a question that we can kind of think about. What are works without that belief piece, though? Uh, Is there something in me um, that thinks that I have to do something or make myself righteous to get the inside track into God's plan? There is a word for it, and it's called self-righteousness, and Jesus doesn't love it, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's a belief that we can do things by ourselves, and it's a problem that we've had since, you know, you can trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve, this idea that I know what's best. I can be a God for myself. I can make my own choices. I can be in, in, um, in control of my own life. I can be my own God. Sometimes I think if, you know, if you're struggling to believe, I, I just wonder sometimes, and for me, um, what is it going to take convince, to convince me? Um, this crowd wanted another meal to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. And I definitely struggle with this sometimes when I find myself doubting. Um, and I want God to prove himself. I want him to say, hey, you come through for me, yeah? Uh, show me that you're God. Show me that you can, ha- that you can do this. Uh, and when it happens, ooh, it's the best, you're like, oh, God is real. This is amazing. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Um, and so I think and I wonder if my faith, my belief, is based solely on what Jesus can do and the miracles that he can do for me. What's in it for me, Jesus? I love the quote from Mark's gospel. Um, somebody responds to Jesus and says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And I think that's where we need to land with Jesus sometimes. Uh, I still have areas where uh, we, can, we can hold firmly and say, I believe this, and still have areas where we go, it's really hard to believe. Um, 
We can be people who stand firm and trust in God, but we can still have questions and still have that wrestle as we're trying to grow closer to him. And then last, but certainly not least, number three, uh, Jesus seems less concerned about the physical and way more concerned about the spiritual. Less concerned about the physical and more concerned about the spiritual. So we come to kind of the, the, the climax of this part, where the verse 35, I am the bread of life. Jesus takes it to the next level. He says, those who come will never be hungry or thirsty again. Um, The immediate connotation here is spelled out later on in chapter six, where it says that Jesus has come down from heaven and literally the bread that he's referring to is his flesh. And I'm not gonna lie, in the moment, I would have been a little confused too. (laughs) Sounds a little little over the top, Jesus. Um, And that's what's nice about being a Christian now, right? Is that we have the gift of hindsight in this situation, we can see the correlation between what Jesus is saying and the symbolism that we have demonstrated in communion, right? We get to take communion later uh, today. But when we take the bread and the juice, what, are we, what we are symbolically eating is his flesh and drinking his blood. What does it actually represent? Well, it actually represents his death giving us brand new life. And when we align ourselves with Jesus, we decide that we wanna commit our lives to learning his practices And then we learn pretty quickly that we also must follow in his footsteps. When we lay our lives down, just as Romans says, that we become living sacrifices so that we can pick up his new life, his eternal life that Jesus made possible for us. But let's look back at the response the crowd has. They weren't weren't picking up what he put down. Actually, by the end of this chapter, everybody um, gets... Jesus' words, they confuse them, they challenge them too much, and they turn and they leave. They stop following him. I can think we can see that they wanted to be taken care of physically. They wanted the immediacy. They wanted political and economic stability. They wanted more or less a Band-Aid for a situation that Jesus deeply, deeply wanted to heal. Um, The crowd wanted quick fix satisfaction, and Jesus wanted to bring eternal satisfaction. And... um, when I think about this, like the temporary versus, versus something that will help you out more long term, the first thing that I thought of was my parents and how um, if you're a parent and you have children, you probably have a child that's a little like me, um, the kid that always wants pizza for dinner no matter what, right? Mom, oh, you had a tough day. Oh, you had a hard day at work. You don't want to make dinner. Dad, Dad, you've been working too hard. We should just get on the phone. Call a pizza, Domino's, ooh, that'd be delightful. Sounds great, doesn't it? You know, always, always wanting that, but my parents, being um, the good people they are, they, we did have pizza, don't get me wrong, but they knew that I wasn't gonna get the nutrients um, and the, the, the things that I needed to be strong and have a healthy diet, right? Um, my belly, they could have fed me pizza every night. My belly would have been full every night, right? Um, but I, but, uh, and I would have been satisfied in that moment, but I wasn't gonna be able to live my most healthy life if that was the way that things progressed, right? The way that I wanted it. In this, hear me, that Jesus deeply cares about our physical well-being, he, but he cares way more about our spiritual well-being. And here's where I think we get stuck, and maybe it's just me. <laughs> uh, so I'll take it for myself if you don't, if you don't relate, but... Tending to our spiritual well-being is actually way harder, involves way more sacrifice, takes way more time than just satisfying our physical needs. 
uh, cultivating a relationship with Jesus, spending time learning from him, and ultimately practicing dying to ourselves, man, it takes time, consistency, and a ton of sacrifice. But friends, following Jesus is actually an invitation to come and die, but it's in that dying to ourselves that we find this beautiful new life, that Zoe kind of life that Jesus gives for us. And it's here where we find our deepest hungers of our lives satisfied. And that that desire to truly be known, to truly be loved, to truly be seen and accepted, and the ability to be with God forever. Man, Jesus is our spiritual well-balanced diet, my friends. He's the truth. He gives us life, and it's only in him that we can find that true soul satisfaction. And that is Jesus, the bread of life for us, yeah? Yeah.